You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Activism and influence operations in the Hamas-Israel war. An oil rig cyber espionage campaign prospects a Middle Eastern government. Emailed bomb threats in the Baltic. Dark web advertising yields insight into Excella Steeler malware. Casio discloses a breach of customer data. The FCC proposes a return to net neutrality. The FCC proposes a return to net neutrality while the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau proposes data handling rules under Dodd-Frank. Deepin Desai from Zscaler shares insights on move-it transfer vulnerabilities. Our own Simone Petrella speaks with Google's Tatiana Bolton about the challenges of bridging the cyber talent gap. And Ragnar Locker has been taken down by international law enforcement. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Friday, October 20th, 2023. Cyber operations in the Hamas-Israel war continue to be characterized by a high volume of opportunistic, nuisance-level hacktivism. Influence operations contend over responsibility for the blast at Al-Ali Hospital in Gaza. The U.S. intelligence community has concluded tentatively that the explosion seems to have been an accident caused by a malfunctioning rocket fired from Gaza toward Israel by Islamic Jihad. That was the Israeli position shortly after the incident. Hamas's claims that the explosion was due to an Israeli airstrike, however, continue to be generally accepted and circulated in Islamist and wider Arab circles, where they've driven widespread protests this week. Most of the hacktivism in the conflict has been conducted in the interest of Hamas. Israeli operations by private sector actors seem to have concentrated on collection and analysis, particularly with respect to identifying and locating hostages taken in the initial Hamas attacks. Haaretz reports that NSO, Rayzone, and AnyVision have been especially involved in this effort. Iran's oil rig threat group, also known as APT-34 and by Symantec as Krambus, conducted an eight-month intrusion campaign against a Middle Eastern government. The threat hunter team at Symantec reported yesterday that Krambus stole files and passwords and, in one case, installed a PowerShell backdoor, dubbed Power Exchange, 
that was used to monitor incoming mails sent from an exchange server in order to execute commands sent by the attackers in the form of emails and surreptitiously forwarded results to the attackers. Which government was targeted, Symantec doesn't say, but the researchers do note that the Krambus target list has historically included Saudi Arabia, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Kuwait, Qatar, Albania, the United States, and Turkey. The Baltic Times reports that waves of emailed bomb threats have been arriving in the region. They appear to represent a coordinated campaign run by Russian operators. Lithuanian Police Commissioner General Renatas Poleza said, It has been established that the senders of the emails are actively participating in telegram channels created by Russian-speaking pro-Russian groups and instigating the spreading of emails threatening to blow up educational establishments. The campaign began last Friday with 900 bomb threats against Lithuanian kindergartens and schools, and it continued over the weekend with some 1,500 threats against educational establishments, municipal buildings, and other public locations. The threats were empty. No bombs were found. Lithuania's Interior Minister Agne Bilitait called it a regional attack since Estonia, Latvia, and Poland had all been affected. She said at a news conference, this is an attempt to create a certain panic, to destabilize the situation in a sense, and to burden institutions, especially law enforcement, with an additional load. We're all familiar with distributed denial of service when a website or service is choked with traffic. The bomb threats aren't DDoS in this sense, but consider them a denial of service with an S, services in the plural campaign, when investigators and first responders are chasing false alarms, they're not able to handle real threats, and kids aren't learning if their school day is one long fire drill. Fortinet is tracking a new commodity info stealer called Excella Stealer that emerged on underground markets in August 2023. Fortinet says... Excella Stealer is a largely open-source info stealer with paid customizations available from the threat actor. It is written in Python, although it pulls resources from other languages like JavaScript where needed. It can steal sensitive information from a Windows-based host. Criminal customers in the C2C market can pay a monthly subscription of $20 to use Excella Stealer, or they can spend a one-time fee of $120 for lifetime use. Viper Security Group's third-quarter 2023 email threat report has found that threat actors are increasingly hiding malicious links in Google Drive and other cloud storage services. Viper states, Google Drive is a convenient, centralized location for hiding malware and a great watering hole for unsuspecting users. Cybercriminals can stuff docs full of malicious links and click to download malware that otherwise wouldn't make it through traditional email protection solutions. PDFs and QR codes are showing up a lot in malicious spam. Viper says, PDFs as a mal-spam delivery tool have more than quadrupled since the first quarter of this year. Notably, the researchers state that QR code-based phishing emails accounted for a full 10% of the total phishing emails they received this quarter. Japanese electronics company Casio has disclosed a data breach of personal information belonging to customers in 149 countries. The breach affected ClassPad, 
Casio's education web application and involved nearly 92,000 items belonging to customers, including individuals and just over 1,100 educational institution customers. The exposed data included customer names, email addresses, purchasing information, and service usage information. The company notes that it doesn't retain credit card data. This week has seen a couple of regulatory developments. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission is moving toward a return to net neutrality. The Wall Street Journal characterizes the proposed regulation as treating Internet service providers like utilities. The regulations would prevent carriers, for example, from giving favorable treatment to some content providers. Yesterday, the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau proposed a rule that would affect how financial institutions handle their customers' data. The CFPB is an independent agency responsible to the Federal Reserve. The personal financial data rights rule would give consumers more control over the data they share with institutions, and it would impose certain restrictions on how those institutions handle the data. It would, in particular, prevent firms from misusing or wrongfully monetizing the sensitive personal financial data. The authority for the proposed rule is Section 1033 of Dodd-Frank. The rule is open for comment until December 29th. And finally, there's been a notable law enforcement success. The Ragnar Locker ransomware operations negotiation and data leak sites were seized yesterday by an international group of law enforcement agencies, Bleeping Computer Reports. A spokesperson for Europol told TechCrunch that the agencies will officially announce the takedown later today. Based on the takedown notice posted to the seized websites, the operation involved law enforcement entities from the U.S., Germany, France, Italy, Japan, Spain, the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, and Latvia. Bleeping Computer notes that Ragnar Locker wasn't part of a ransomware-as-a-service operation, but was a private gang that would recruit outside help to breach networks. So, bravo to all the agencies involved in the takedown. It probably represents a knockdown and not a knockout for Ragnar Locker, but nonetheless, well done. And three cheers for international law enforcement cooperation. Coming up after the break, Deepin Desai from Zscaler shares insights on MoveIt transfer vulnerabilities. Our own Simone Petrella speaks with Google's Tatiana Bolton about the challenges of bridging the cyber talent gap. Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. 
So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Tatiana Bolton is Security Policy Manager at Google and a Senior Advisor on the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Our own N2K President Simone Petrella spoke with Tatiana Bolton about the challenges of bridging the cyber talent gap. When you talk about all these amazing initiatives that are happening across the industry, including what Google's doing to increase the pipeline and, you know, not only the pipeline of cyber talent, but even more diverse cyber talent, it always strikes me that it's it's not possible to think about that pipeline unless you create room within organizations to allow for those new candidates to actually come into entry level positions and kind of upskill or give a path for those who there who are who are there in the companies already. And I'm curious if there's anything even just anecdotally you can share about how Google thinks about talent in a retention sense because if you don't have a way to retain and pathway people it's hard to to kind of create a world where we can take that entry-level talent and actually grow them into the roles. Yeah, well, so Google does a lot. Like, it helps us significantly with growing our expertise. We've got, you know, great support to get training and, uh, and upskill, try new positions at Google. So those are all, I think, best practices that Google, you know, currently uses. But I think just generally, we need to make sure that we are thinking about, like you're talking about the issue of people coming in the door and like some of the requirements, I think there's a number of things we could do there, right? We've got bachelor's degree requirements, CISSP requirements, five years of experience for entry-level positions. That's just silly. And I think we've been talking about this for a long time, but it is inherent on uh, the people who are doing the hiring to take that in and really do strategic assessments of their hiring documents and the position descriptions to determine whether a CISSP is actually needed for an entry-level position or if you could actually do better for your organization as a whole by bringing in more entry-level talent, helping them, mentoring them. Obviously, that's a really critical component. You can't like bring on entry-level talent, not help them along, not do the training because that you know presents a number of issues. But if, you've, if you're committed to the mentorship and the training piece, if you bring in the entry-level talent, you can get you can really help a person grow their career and it bring, and it allows them to grow develop as a uh, as a professional with room for you know with room for growth right so you don't always i think in dc you see this a lot in the federal government everybody's like a 13 14 they're senior level policy people right they're senior level technical people 
there's very there's almost very little room at the at the beginning. I think we need to address the structural underlying issues, uh, such as those position descriptions, the fact that managers are are eager to get eager to get experienced talent. So we need to address those types of things to make sure that it's easy or easier for organizations to hire that entry level person, professional, right? And make sure the requirements are reasonable. And then to your point on retention, yeah, absolutely. Like it's, I think culture plays a big role in this too. Pretend like you've got to have a good culture in order to retain your talent. You need to give people room for growth. You have to allow them training. That helps not only the person, it helps the professional also helps your organization. Uh, And so I think there's, you know, with some of those things built in, you can do a lot of work. Obviously, CISA has focused on the pay piece, which is great. I think it's addressed some of those problems by putting in cyber pay at CISA, uh, making it uh, more enticing to work there. Obviously, they're competing against uh, large name brands and uh, like, like Google. <laughs> it is amazing to work here. So, you know, uh, what can I say? But, uh, you know, NSA also has uh, a great recruitment and retention program, right? NSA has almost a best in class within the federal government. They, you know, they allow rotations, they encourage training, trying new things, they hire at the entry level, they grow their talent. So it is possible, right? And so, and I think like there's, there's pockets of this excellence across the, across the world. And I think we should take some of those uh, best practices and put them into work across the ecosystem because you you know CISA has CyberPay, but have they really implemented the rotational part of what makes NSA hiring so great and retention so great? No, and so I think we need to. We still have work. We, we still have work to do and, and room to grow that. Uh, but nothing, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. I just hate myself for having said that cliche out loud. <laughs> I'll put it on my bingo card. Um, but it's, you know, your point on job descriptions is is so salient because, you know, not to sound overly crass, but the amount of times I've worked with organizations on their job descriptions, and frankly, they suck. And it's because people are busy, hiring managers busy, we take one off the shelf and we kind of repurpose it. And at the end of the day, even though it might take extra effort to get them right, what I hear you saying and what I kind of see myself is you have to know where you want to go with those roles before you can create a path or an opening for someone to get into them. Right. I think this speaks to the need to develop a workforce strategy within your organization. If you're an organization that's struggling to get cyber talent, which many of them are, you need to think about it strategically. You need to sit down and, and it should be an executive level exercise. This is, I think, one of the areas where it goes wrong. There's not executive level review and investment into the cyber workforce. And that is the level at which this needs to be done. With that, you can do an assessment. Are these the right people? Where are we going in five years? Where do we want to be in 10 years? And what does that workforce look like that gets us there? Because it's not necessarily the workforce you have today. And, you know, obviously technology changes. The, you know, the times change. A pandemic happens. Who predicted that one? So, it, like, you you obviously, and it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard task for companies. I'm not going to lie. It's not, you know, you have to almost look into a crystal ball and, like, but do some, you know, do some data analysis. Cyberseek.org, plug for them. Amazing work. They have great uh, data points broken out by sector, broken out by 
levels of hiring. So uh, definitely a place to look as a resource as you're trying to do some of this review and analysis for your organizations. Also one point, because I mentioned emerging technologies, AI, I think also is definitely a place that will have an impact on the cyber workforce, as it will, I think, on, on most of the workforce. At Google, obviously, we've uh, been working on and developing AI technologies for more than a decade already. But I think now, you know, there's a really big focus on it. And we are, you know, moving ahead boldly, but responsibly, you know, but we see opportunities in the in the workforce space, right? For example, how AI can be used in a safe manner. We actually just put out the um, AI safe principles, S-A-I-F. So you can take a look at those, but the, they they think they talk about how you can actually use that AI to secure your networks and how it can help the defender. Right? What defender doesn't have issues identifying, prioritizing, and addressing the insane number of vulnerabilities that exist and applying patches in a prioritized manner? Right? What if we could figure out a way how AI can help that? Right? So there's this some of this toil that a lot of people experience and leads to burnout in the industry that we can also think creatively about how we can apply AI to help that. So, you know, I think it's, um, there's a lot of opportunity and um, I think we, we we're already looking at we, looking at how to apply these things. So uh, we are, uh, so there's stuff out there at DEF CON, for example, we just did an AI red team, right? And so we're trying, we're looking at like, not just talking about uh, the, you know, the defense of the past, but what, what it looks like in the future, training those professionals to think about AI, making sure they're engaged, making sure they're aware of the technology, how, how to work with it, how to address, and then you utilize the technology uh, to best effect. And, you know, obviously from my perspective to defend our networks and systems. That's Tatiana Bolton, Security Policy Manager at Google, speaking with N2K President Simone Petrella. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to the CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Deepin Desai. He is the global CISO and head of security research and operations at Zscaler. Deepin, it's great to welcome you back. It seems as though day after day we hear about more and more organizations who have been hit by this move it file transfer vulnerability. And I know this is something you and your colleagues have had your eye on. Uh, what sort of things can you share with us about the research you all have been doing? Thank you, Dave. So the vulnerability that we're talking about over here is impacting MoveIt transfer application. Uh, and the specific one that has caused a lot of damage is the SQL injection vulnerability that results in threat actor being able to execute additional commands and steal sensitive information. This vulnerability upon successful exploitation could allow an unauthenticated user or an attacker to gain access to the MoveIt transfer database. So this is where 
They are able to infer information about the internals of the database, alter or delete the elements, or even steal information that resides in the database. The type of databases is where, uh, you know, you will, you guys will see the breadth of uh, coverage right, across various organizations. So the type of databases include MySQL, Microsoft SQL Server, Azure SQL. And this is where the vulnerability actually allows adversaries to implant a remote web shell uh, in the victim environment with access to these databases. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like at the moment, this vulnerability is kind of the poster child for a third-party vulnerability. So, so many organizations are finding themselves uh, being hit here. Yeah, I mean, this software is heavily used in several industry verticals, starting with healthcare. There are like several IT departments, even in case of financial services, government, um, Various global organizations were found to be using it. Now, the maximum damage that we have seen over here is where uh, the application was exposed to the internet. And this is where we saw uh, one of the notorious ransomware gang, Clop Ransomware Group. Uh, and this actually goes back to one of the trends that we're noticing, encryption-less ransomware attack. In this case, the Clop Ransomware Gang just basically targeted any vulnerable systems with this vulnerability, installed that web shell and exfiltrated large volume of data from several global organizations. And then they're demanding ransom from these organizations uh, with a threat of making that data public if they don't pay the ransom. But they did nothing other than exploiting a vulnerable internet-exposed server and then exfiltrating data. No payload trans. Uh, well, well, there was a web shell um, planted, but no user being targeted, no asset, uh, no persistence being established in the victim environment, no recon done. It's just targeting this high-profile uh, application that is vulnerable. What are the lessons learned here? I mean, it's easy to to look back and kind of, you know, armchair quarterback what's going on here. But what what are the takeaways? organizations trusted move it as a provider, but this could happen to anybody. Yeah, this could happen to anybody. And the closest one that I would uh, relate this to is uh, Log4j, right? That's where, and it's not more so about the vendor, but uh, the type of issue getting discovered and the amount of usage, both internal and external, of this specific application uh, or the module that's actually vulnerable. That's what the... Uh, common trend between those two things are. Now, lessons learned over here, you really need to reduce your external attack surface. That's number one thing. And that's something that I was speaking about back when Log4j happened as well. Number one is if the attacker is not able to do a recon and target those applications, uh, you know, you're, you're automatically protected at a stage one. It still doesn't mean that you don't have to patch it. You, you absolutely must prioritize patching these type of vulnerabilities that target any of your critical applications. Any application where tier one data, tier one definition, in my opinion, is your employee data, your customer data, your code base, any sensitive information that can cause significant brand reputation harm. 
you need to prioritize patching. So that's stage two. Stage one, reduce your attack surface. Stage two, prioritize patching. Even if that application is internal, you need to prioritize patching those applications because what we're seeing in, in this threat landscape is the multi-stage attacks where if one of your user falls for an attack, they will use that machine to discover these type of applications that are vulnerable, even if it's internal. Right? So that will reduce your blast radius to only your employees that may may, may make mistake, but you're still vulnerable to these type of vulnerabilities. And especially when something like MoveIt or Log4j happens, these threat actors, the first quick thing they will do is anything that is exposed to the internet, they will target that. The next thing you will see is they will start weaponizing payloads that then gets planted on those end user machines. And that's where they will then move around in the environment, discovering these vulnerable applications and stealing information in that manner. Yeah, I mean, it really is a a cautionary tale here, but uh, I, I suppose it's good that there are lessons to be learned here. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Deepin Desai is Global CISO and Head of Security Research and Operations at Zscaler. Deepin, thank you so much for taking the time for us today. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Sysdig's Alessandro Brucata and Michael Clark. We're discussing their research, AWS's hidden threat, Amber Squid, cloud-native crypto-jacking operation. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 